Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor as well as the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And if you would like to be a part of the program, you could always uh, send me a comment uh, or a question or, or any kind of issue uh, to either any of the links that's in the description of the show or, of course, to the listener hotline. That phone number, free of charge, 303-832-0217. Today on the show, I am guest-free. I do have a guest uh, scheduled. I think I have a guest scheduled for next week. Uh, but this week, I wanted to follow up on a topic that I talked about a few episodes back. I spoke with Emily from Denver Streets Partnership about pedestrians uh, getting hit by drivers, especially in downtown Denver, but really uh, all across the country. And I'm not saying that it's not a problem. Obviously, it is a problem to have people who are crossing the street hit by a car. But what I'm saying is that the main issue causing the problem is really distracted and inattentive drivers and not looking for somebody who might be in the street, whether they're in a crosswalk or outside a crosswalk. And obviously there is uh, uh, some personal responsibility that, that uh, I believe in. If somebody is crossing a street outside of a crosswalk, uh, if they're going to be running across where, where somebody is not really looking for them. But there was a story from Streets Blog that pretty much says, though, that the reason they think that pedestrians are being hit and killed by drivers is not because of drivers speeding or being distracted or they're in, inattentive or that pedestrians are not watching out for vehicles, or or any other reason that, that might just pop into your head. No, no, no. Streets blog says that the reason pedestrians are being hit and killed by cars is because it's easy to get a car loan. Yes, you, you heard that. Yeah, it's easy to get a car loan. Easy financing, they think, is killing people walking in the street. Now, the title of this article is called The Secret Villains Behind Traffic Violence, Auto Lenders. Americans have access to more car loans than ever, and they're buying pedestrian-killing SUVs. It's by Kia Wilson, and this article was written at the start of the pandemic. So this is when people were still buying cars and the economy was at its peak. But this article really demonstrates that some people hate cars especially large cars, and we'll blame easy auto loans for the reason that we are driving more. So let me get into this, and it's Kia Wilson who writes this, and she says, Americans are taking on more debt than ever at the car dealership, and the rise in risky auto lending has everything to do with our national rise in pedestrian fatalities. (laughs) Kia comes out of the gate with that beauty. Risky auto lending. Getting a loan for a car? It's not necessarily risky. Why Why is it necessarily risky? If, let's say, somebody makes $500 a week and you take out a car loan uh, on an Escalade that might cost, let's say, $300 a week. Well, that probably is irresponsible on both parties, the person taking the loan as well as the dealership or the car seller. The lender, you would think, and, and the buyer should be agreeing that it's it's probably a good idea to, to have a certain uh, payment level it, 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 that they that they can afford. But it is it, necess- it necessarily risky 
it, it, if let's say the uh, car payment was $50 a week and the income is $1,000 a, a week and they wanted to finance it, uh, is that necessarily a risky car loan? I, I don't think so. Try, trying to take a selfie with a mountain lion, that's risky. All right, back to this article in Streets Blog. The total amount that Americans owe on their cars rose a shocking 75% from 2009 to today, according to a new report from the Frontier Group. But the trouble isn't just that more people are buying cars they can't afford. It's that lax lending policies are allowing them to pick huge, expensive cars and, as Streets Blog has documented, the bigger the car, the more lethal it is to pedestrians. First of all, how, how does she know that we are all buying cars we can't afford? I, I'm very sure lenders vet a person before they just hand over tens of thousands of dollars in an auto loan. They expect to get that money back. I sure would be vetting the people who I'm lending out money to. Credit checks, income verifications, all that sort of thing. It's all part of getting a car loan, right? You've been through it, I'm sure. Uh, do some people get over their skis and debt? Sure. But to make a blanket statement that we are all buying cars that we can't afford is reaching. The one sentence in there that is true is the statement that larger cars are more lethal when a pedestrian is hit. I did an interview uh, a few years back. Uh, I think it was a reporter with the Detroit Free Press. And he did a whole story about how the change in vehicle design, and it's mostly about getting all the sensors for self-driving and lane assist and all these things. So the, the, the design of the vehicles are more flat front than they are pointed front. Because cars of old had a pointy front, so if a person was hit, they would more likely roll up on the hood. But now when somebody is hit by a car... There's a larger, flatter surface, and that even includes on a little mini that I've seen. Um, so it's not just uh, little cars, big cars, all cars. They all have more of a flat surface. So it's really car design, not just for large trucks and SUVs, but for most cars, is more deadly and dangerous now than in years past. Okay. Back to the Streets blog article. SUVs and light trucks have become the vehicle of choice for U.S. drivers over the last decade, grabbing a record 70% of the market in 2019. That's a stark contrast from 2009 when Americans tightened their belts in the wake of the financial crisis and opted for cheaper rides. Smaller cars outsold assault vehicles just 10 years ago, but as the economy recovered, so did buyers' appetites for big cars. <laughs> I like that. Assault vehicles. No, they're, they're not assault vehicles. They, they are just vehicles driven by people who might not be paying attention the way they should be. And they're just larger vehicles, and it's been a trend over many years that automakers are producing fewer of the traditional sedans and making more of the crossover vehicles. You see them everywhere. The Nissan Rogues and the Toyota uh, Highlanders and the, um, the Honda Pilots and the what, whatever. And by themselves, they don't assault anything. The drivers who use them are the ones responsible for the action of the car, not the car itself, because most cars can't drive them by themselves yet. And people have always liked larger cars. My family had a station wagon when I was growing up as a kid. That thing could easily hold six. It, it, isn't that basically what a large SUV does now? 
and, and haul stuff from Costco or Sam's or anywhere back to your house. It's more practical for a large family to have a large vehicle. Just the other day, I saw two parents of uh, six kids get into a transit van. Like, like <laughs> I mean, just like the one you would take almost from the uh, from an airport parking lot to the uh, to the terminal. Large family, large vehicle, I guess. If if we didn't allow couples maybe to have a large family, we wouldn't need large vehicles, would we? Maybe maybe that's the the problem. Back to the article. And as cars got bigger, more pedestrians started dying. Many media outlets have connected the 10-year explosion in pedestrian fatalities to the growing number of SUVs on our streets, largely because more massive cars strike walkers at the head and neck rather than at the chest or their knees, which is less fatal. We can stop this trend, and reforming the car loan industry could be a crucial step. A raft of factors contributed to the rise of the mega car on American roads. Low gas prices, consumer perceptions that bigger vehicles are safer, and a strong jobs market all played a role. Although the influence of loosening auto lending standards on SUV purchases is less well documented, it shouldn't surprise us that when you give consumers in an SUV-obsessed culture easy access to large auto loans, many will pick the biggest car they can get their hands on. Not exactly true. Just because I can qualify for a home loan of, let's say, $500,000, that doesn't mean that I will buy a house for that much money or could pay back that loan. In fact, it happened to me and my wife. We were qualifying for much more than we could ever afford, and somebody actually said, why don't you buy up to that level? Because I can't afford to do anything else in the house. Because... You need to take care of the house and maintain the house. So even though you could qualify for it, most people know what they can and can't afford, even though they do and can qualify for more than what they can afford. And to assume that since I can qualify for, let's say, a $50,000 car loan, that I will automatically go pick the Ford Expedition over a Mustang or a Tundra over a Mini is a stretch. People go into the dealership knowing what they want to drive, not wanting to see what they qualify for and then picking the vehicle based on that figure and how many people they can end up killing. All right, back to the article from Kia Wilson in Streets Blog. And when we say easy access, we really do mean easy. In the wake of the financial crash, the auto loan industry not only expanded access to high-interest subprime loans for borrowers with low credit scores, a predatory tactic that leaves low-income vehicle owners vulnerable to default, it also extended the life of the average loan. 42% of all auto loans issued in 2017 carried a term of six years or longer, compared to just 26% in 2009. So what the author here is saying then is that lower income people who might get an auto loan are all being coerced, they're swindled, they're being forced at pen point to sign their life away so that they can get out on the roads and kill as many pedestrians as possible, owing as much money as they can. So in one breath, the author says this is predatory lending practices with the goal to purchase the largest and most expensive vehicle just to mow down unsuspecting people in or out of crosswalks. All right, the article continues with this quote. 
It changes a person's calculus of what car they should buy, said Frontier Policy Analyst R.J. Cross. In the era of Netflix and endless monthly subscription services, people are starting to determine how much they can afford, not by the sticker price, but in terms of what they'll actually pay per month. Cars are no different. (laughs) But wait... Just in that last paragraph, you said that low-income buyers were being coerced into high payments, so now you're saying they know what they can afford, and they do that in terms of a monthly payment. Okay. It continues. A low monthly payment is a powerful incentive to pick a spendy SUV over a sensible sedan, and it opens up a new market of buyers who otherwise might have chosen a smaller, cheaper car that would have been less lethal to a pedestrian in a crash. Again, just about every buyer knows what they want to buy and what they can afford before going to a dealer. They don't go into it saying, how much will you give me so I can buy the largest killing machine on the showroom floor? That's not how it happens. It just isn't. All right, back to the article. The rise in rollover financing has been a boon to SUV dealers, too. Increasingly, car dealerships allow buyers who trade in old vehicles with outstanding loans to add their unpaid balance to the new car payment. The practice allows drivers to upgrade to bigger cars they can't really afford even before their current ride is paid off and puts them at huge financial risk if they can't make the new car payment. Again, who are you to assume the car buyer who, who, who does this can't afford a newer, more expensive vehicle? If someone is having a hard time paying off their killing machine already, why in the world would they go to a dealership to buy something newer with presumably higher payments above what they can't already afford? All with the intent to kill people. That's ri- Don't forget that's what this article is about. <laughs> Lending money to people who can't afford to buy cars to buy expensive cars and then kill people. All right, back to the article. But whether or not they realize it, drivers who take on big loans for big cars are getting a raw deal. The average American household already spends about 13% of its income on transportation, a proportion that will only rise as Americans get more access to loans at the dealership. It's not hard to imagine what will happen to a nation full of debt-saddled drivers in the event of an economic turndown. Mass repossession. We are arguably still in the midst of one of the strangest times economically in the history of the country, right? And even though some of us are having some very difficult times, we are not seeing massive numbers of repossessions. There are some people who are defaulting on their payments, but not hundreds of thousands as street blogs uh, makes it out to be. And you would think that they would actually like to have Mass repossession, because that would mean all of those, um, what she call them? Oh, yeah, assault vehicles. That means that all of those assault vehicles are then going to be off the road if they all get repossessed, right? Isn't that her ultimate goal, to get the pedestrian-killing vehicles off the roads? A mass repossession would accomplish just that. In fact, with used car prices soaring, if someone was underwater with their auto loan, this is the time right now to get paid for that used car. All right, the article continues. But even if such a crisis never happens, 
The auto lending balloon is still a national concern for one reason, because it's helped unleash a growing number of pedestrian-killing SUVs and trucks on American streets. Again, nice assertion here. All right, here comes the big finish, and it's, and it's a beauty. We need to use every weapon in our arsenal if we want to reverse our horrifying traffic violence trends. Perhaps reforming the auto loan industry should be the one we reach for next. Who is we? When, when Kia says, who is we? Um, I'm not included in the we, that's for sure. Perhaps the real problem is here, uh, people who are driving nowadays are, are way more distracted than ever before. Maybe that's where Street's blog focus should be, on distracted and inattentive drivers. Focus your effort on that, in, re- in reducing the number of, of people not paying attention to what they're doing while they're driving, because that should be what their most important function should be, paying attention to what they're doing while they're driving, which is, of course, driving. Making crossings maybe more visible. There are ways to do that. Now, in the manual of uniform traffic control devices, there are certain requirements for pedestrian crossings. But I have seen other cities change that a bit, and they have used uh, creative ways to make crossings more visible. Actually, I think one of the better ways, and this is in Europe, so they're not obviously uh, committed or uh, uh, bound by the, uh, the manual, but they have made some 3D crossings where it looks like it is the street is raised or the crossing is raised, so it naturally makes drivers slow down just because of the angle of, what, of, where, of how the paint is. So it makes you naturally slow down, and, and isn't that the goal, right? To get people to slow down at crossings where pedestrians should be, where people sh- who are driving should be looking for them, not in the middle of the street. Uh, maybe enforcing speed limits. Let's try that. That could help. Uh, Personal responsibility, you see, is not in their vocabulary. Especially when it comes to pedestrians walking in the street, whether it's in the middle of the street or walking just right down the street or just jumping out in front of a car. That's not part of their deals. I really think this is an interesting look into, into what some people think is the problem and how to solve the pedestrian problem which is getting hit by a driver and then resulting in significant injury or or death. And again, of course, I don't want to see people getting hurt uh, when they're crossing the street. But maybe we should look at the crossings and maybe you look at other uh, street design to slow people down in those areas where people are crossing the street. And again, you can read that article in Streets Blog. All right, I was uh, on a whole different subject. I was sent an email recently, and it had this headline on it, and it really caught my attention. It it says, slow music in tunnels can keep drivers focused and safe. Study is proof of principle that well-chosen background music can improve road safety. I thought it was pretty interesting. I actually contacted the authors of this study. They sent me some information back. They said they didn't want to be on the show I think mostly because they were uh, from out of the country and they don't speak English very well. And, uh, but they did send me a bunch of information about this study. And it's really interesting. And, and basically what they're saying is that if you play slow music inside a tunnel, 
It helps keep drivers alert, relaxed, and focused on safety. And if you really want to be safe, then you play alarm sounds like sirens at the entrance and the exit of a tunnel because they say that's where the risk of accidents is the greatest. So the study authors are from China, Canada, and the United States. And they say when drivers go through a tunnel, they have to process a large amount of information quickly. They say, we wanted to find the best way to use sound to keep drivers alert and focused inside tunnels. We compared the effect on brain activity from different types of sound, slow versus fast music, warning sounds such as sirens, or a voice reminding them to drive safely. We show that the best solution is to play slow music inside the tunnel, but also to play alarming sounds like a siren at the entry and exit or during emergencies. Now, they said previous research has found that accidents are less frequent in tunnels than on open roads, but that accidents that do happen inside a tunnel tend to be more serious. Accidents are more likely just before or after the entrance, but the rate of accidents is the same no matter the length of a tunnel, which I thought was interesting. Now, once drivers are acclimated or acclimatized, as they wrote in the message to me, once they are acclimated to the special environment inside the tunnel, drivers tend to reduce their speed, move away from the tunnel wall, causing rate of accidents to decrease. And accidents become more likely again over the middle stretch of the long tunnels because drivers may relax their vigilance, uh, their vigilance from boredom. Now, these authors studied whether background sounds and, and music might help keep drivers relaxed but focused over the length, especially in a long tunnel. With immersive virtual reality... What they did is simulate a three-mile-long four-lane tunnel with traffic in both directions, driving between 50 and 60 miles an hour. Then they recruited 40 young women and men to act as experimental drivers, and these people watched virtual reality screens while inside a console that continually recorded the pressure on their pedals as if they were really driving, What their, their steering wheels angle, their, their speed, acceleration, all of those things. To, to pretend to know what it's really like if they were driving in a tunnel. All right, this is when I get to play some music. Now, researchers use wireless sensors to compare the driver's neurophysiology response to five experimental sounds. A recording from a real tunnel. Now, the slow music, this one right here, you've heard it, I'm sure, uh, at every wedding you've been to over the last, what, 50 years. Uh, Canon in D. This, this was the slow music they chose. All right, now, now this song right here, this is the fast song they chose. It's uh, the Croatian Rhapsody. And that was the fast music right here. They also use a police siren and a female voice warning saying, please turn on the lights, slow down, and no overtaking. Uh, they also had a, a female voice say this, here is an accident, please turn on the lights and slow down. Okay, so they measured skin electrical conductance as a proxy for arousal, which encompasses attention, vigilance, and memory storage. Measures of heart rate and its variability served as proxies for emotional state, stress, mental load, and fatigue, while EEG measures of the brain activity 
were used as proxies for wakefulness, fatigue, relaxation, and nervousness. Now, the drivers drove fastest in response to that fast music and slowest in response to the slow music. They used comparisons of heart rate, variability, typically low in people who are are stressed, indicated that the drivers felt most relaxed with a minimal mental load when listening to slow music. It was consistent with feedback from drivers. 63% chose the slow music as their preferred background music. And comparisons of the driver's brain waves indicated that slow music reduced nervousness in the drivers, while the voice prompts, fast music, and sirens increased it. They found that the voice prompt was most effective in preventing tiredness. Drowsy driving, by the way, is, is really a huge problem. Now, these authors concluded that safety would increase if inside a tunnel, so this is not inside your car, this is actually inside the tunnel, if they played slow music as a background in the tunnel while sirens were playing only at the entry or exit of the tunnel or during emergencies. Researchers added that they have a long way to go before more specific design and management recommendations can be proposed. For example, uh, future studies should test the effects of greater range of sounds on drivers who differ in age, maybe different driving experiences, uh, hearing sensitivities, degrees of fatigue. But they say the study is a is a proof which pushes our knowledge on road safety a- as a step forward. Again, I, I contacted these researchers from an interview because I thought this was fascinating. They declined, saying that they are still also doing relevant research. It's going on, and the testing uh, is still going on. And I, I, I really don't think they were they were comfortable uh, uh, with speaking English because they are mostly, I think, from China. Um, and so I didn't think they wanted to come on with me. And they think they need more research to make these conclusions more matured. Unfortunately, um, they said they declined our invitation for the interview, um, but I still find this research fascinating. And and we have the longest highway, actually, and uh, highest in elevation tunnel in the world here in Colorado, the Eisenhower Johnson Memorial Tunnels along Interstate 70 west of Denver. Uh, It's at 11,000 feet in elevation. It's over a mile and a half long. Uh, But the big concern up there is actually hazardous materials trucks, uh, gasoline hauling trucks, crashing inside the tunnel that could shut it down for for days or, or weeks or forever. So really what they do is there's there's a pass. The original highway was U.S. Highway 6 that goes over the Continental Divide, and uh, that's where all the hazardous materials trucks go now, and it is a treacherous drive, especially in the winter. So they are sending these gasoline-hauling trucks up over this windy two-lane mountain pass over the Continental Divide with steep slopes on either side of the road in wintertime. Just just best, uh, hope for the best, (laughs) just to keep them outside the tunnel. Now they do, uh, if if they have that pass closed down because of avalanches, which they do have, or bad weather, they will allow the hazardous materials trucks to go through the uh, tunnels there, the Eisenhower-Johnson tunnels, at the top of each hour, uh, but they'll close down it to all, close the tunnels down to all traffic. Let the hazmat trucks go through, and then allow traffic to once again go through. Uh, I don't know why they don't do that all the time. I well, I guess I do know because the state patrol and the and the state is it really is freaked out that if any kind of a crash happened inside that tunnel, they actually have 
uh, really uh, heavy duty and really cool, sophisticated fire suppression system in that tunnel and their own fire department, basically, that can uh, handle any of those situations up there at the tunnel. But they are worried that if anything happened up there and did some damage that would be long-term damage, it would close down the, the gateway, really, between uh, the east side and the west side of the state. And I-70 is a huge interstate. Otherwise, you'd have to go down to New Mexico, I-40 and or I-80 up north to Wyoming. And those maybe aren't great options for you either. So a lot of folks from the Midwest use, um, uh, like from Chicago or St. Louis or, you know, the big Kansas City uh, coming from across the country. All those truckers are using I-70 across Colorado. And it's, uh, it's a major interstate and they got to keep it open. So what do you think are some of the most stressful things people find about driving? Well, there's a study of 2,000 drivers, and it revealed almost half said that other drivers make them concerned on the roads. And a third admitted that driving is often the most stressful time of their day. Navigating a double roundabout, maybe being in the car with a partner, a backseat driver, they were featured among the top 50 stress uh, stresses while you're driving. It also emerged that more than half of the, these people polled feel most comfortable with their partner as a passenger while drivers feel at, at least ease with colleagues or siblings as their driving partner. The study also showed that 42% of drivers feel more worried when they have a passenger in the car compared to when they're alone by themselves in the car. However, 60% of those polled believe that a car is a good place to have a discussion with others. Well, yeah, because they're a captive audience. Now, this research was commissioned by Rescue Remedy. They found nearly 50% make uh, important decisions in their car as, as people have more time to think. And a quarter of the people see it as a place to escape life's woes. I love driving in the car. It, it does give you a good place to think and to contemplate life. Uh, a spokesman for Rescue Remedy said that the research shows how many elements there are to being in a car which can make it stress-inducing. Snow raises the heartbeat for many motorists. That's understandable. Many people find that if they had a demanding drive, it feels it makes them feel overwhelmed for the rest of their day. A quarter of motorists find par parallel parking stressful. <laughs> and a fifth admit that they avoid parallel parking altogether because they have a fear that something may go wrong with it. <laughs> I've always been pretty good at the parallel parking, but yeah, a lot of people do have a freak out with it. So here are the top 50 most stressful things about being in a car. I guess I should start with number 50 and maybe work my way up or at least skip around on some of these. Uh, number 50 is not knowing how to fully turn on the wipers. <laughs> Speaking of wipers, I think I need new ones before the snow starts flying around here. Uh, number 49 is mini roundabouts. Uh, not knowing how to fully work the lights is number 48. How do you not know that? Uh, driving with a pet in the car. Being in the wrong gear. <laughs> I guess I could see that if you were uh, in a stick shift. Uh, changing gear while up a hill. Now that is a problem if you are in a stick shift. That, that can be a little bit tricky. Uh, remember which side of the car the gas cap is on. And, and if you look at your car, at your dashboard... Right where your gas indicator is, how much fuel you have, it should have, unless you have an electric car, it should have a little arrow pointing left or right. That tells you which side of the car the gas cap is on. 
So now you know. Uh, driving somewhere with no signal, um, pulling into a roundabout, being in a car with your partner, rubbernecking, driving with a child in the car, uh, pulling around a bus at a bus stop. Well, obviously you shouldn't unless, you know, if the, if the lights are on, you don't pass a bus. You stay put. And then when the lights are out, then you just got to be careful. Uh, number 34 is defrosting the car. <laughs> I don't know why that's a problem. Uh, number 32, hitting a car when parking. Yeah, I guess especially if you're parallel parking. Uh, 31, worrying about getting a flat tire. Uh, 30, reversing out of parking spaces. I really think that parking, I, I need to get somebody on the show about parking. There was some other story about parking uh, the other day. I think I'm going to get a per parking person on. But I do think parking lots should be designed where you pull in and pull out going forward. I think it's a lot safer that way and a lot easier going in and out. I wonder what it would do, though, to the, uh, so the space design and how many spaces you could have in a parking lot versus the way it is now. I'd, li I'd really like to see that. Uh, driving while your passenger is being too loud, uh, backseat drivers, Sunday drivers, being the driver for passengers you're not familiar with, like colleagues, people like that. Uh, number 24, leaving the uh, roadway at the wrong intersection. <laughs> Fear of people going to the back of you, like somebody running into your, uh, into your bumper. Uh, number 21, having to change lanes at peak travel times. Uh, number 19, sitting in traffic. Yeah, nobody likes that. Uh, number 18, being watched while other people, when you're trying to park, <laughs> so you're on display. Uh, number 17, blind corners. Uh, 18, or seven, uh, 16, hesitating about taking over a cyclist. Now, in Colorado, I think in most states, you have a three-foot rule or so where you're supposed to be passing a uh, bike rider by three feet. The other day, I'm not kidding, I'm trying to do that. And then there's a, a, a sheriff deputy that's driving in the lane to my left. So I'm starting to drift over the line, the middle line between these two lanes, uh, so I can get around this bike rider. And then he's, he's like almost slams on his brakes and gets right close to me. It's like, look, I'm giving the bike rider some room. I'm either doing that or, I'm, or uh, you're going to slow down and let me do it. Seriously. I mean, anyway. Uh, number 13, how to reverse uh, in a uh, narrow road with cars on either side of you. Uh, number 12, driving with the fuel light on. My wife does that often. Uh, number 11, driving down narrow rural roads. Number 10, trying to find a parking space. Number 9, getting a warning light in your car. <laughs> number 8, feeling like a large truck or bus is too close to your car. I, I don't like that feeling either. Uh, number seven, driving in the dark. Six, driving in the fog. Number five, hitting a pothole. Oh, that's the worst. Number four, tailgaters. Number three, driving in the rain. Different than singing in the rain. Number two, driving in an unknown area. Why do you always turn the radio down when you're driving in a place that you don't know and you want to concentrate more so you turn the radio down <laughs> so you can see better? And the top most stressful thing about being in a car... Number one, driving in the snow. <laughs> there you have it. I, I don't mind driving in the snow if I have good tires, uh, but that is a real key. If you don't have good tires, then you're going to be in bad in a bad way. But I really don't mind driving in the snow. It's not it's not too terribly bad. We get a fair amount of snow around here, right? Uh, if you have your own 
most stressful thing about driving, you can drop me a line on any of the contact links in the uh, in the show description, or of course you can call that listener hotline at 303-832-0217. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.